Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and we're wrapping up today a book called Let Your Kingdom Come. Yes, this is the final audio. I know many of you have been looking forward to that. It's a, It's been a long time, and I part of me wants to apologize to keep you so long on this one subject, but the other part of me says this is vital. Uh, when we think about the corruption of the Word of God, that people have corrupted the teachings of the church that came from the prophets and then the apostles and then the early church fathers and then slowly, slowly disintegrated during the Dark Ages and now has been coming back. Let me read to you some more of the quotes from authors and pastors in our own well, in the 1900s, James Orr, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, professor of church history and theology, he died in 1987. He says, in announcing the approaching advent of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus had in view the very kingdom which the prophets had foretold. Alva J. McLean, a theologian and author who died in 1968, in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, says there have been minor differences among premillennial interpreters with reference to some details of Revelation 20. But these are as nothing when compared to the confusion which reigns among postmillennial and amillennial writers who attempt to expound the chapter. They seem to be a united family only in their unyielding scorn for the premillennial viewpoint and in their opinion that the thousand years are not a thousand years. James D.G. Dunn, British New Testament scholar, Lightfoot Professor of Divinity in the Department of Theology, University of Durham, who died in 2020. He says the point is that Israel has not been cast off. Its blessings have not been taken away from them and given to others. Rather, the Gentiles have been brought in to share the blessings previously confined to Israel. A.T. Robertson, author, theologian, 1934, an indirect quote, he says, or someone of him says, the eclipse of millenarianism in the early Christian centuries produced an earthbound medieval theocracy, which included the illusion of a Christian empire and the concept of the kingdom of God as an omnipotent church. I think we had that quote before. Well, then there's John MacArthur, pastor, author, theologian. From a MacArthur message of 1994, he himself quoting from an, what he calls an unknown source, so I'm going to take the liberty of using it with you. He says this, and, and, and understand now, this is going to be an extended quote very extended, an explanation, a description, a speculation in some ways of what is coming, but I think you'll be delighted with it. He says, this is it. As the kingdom opens, the temple has been built. The nations of the earth are coming there to worship the true God and Christ. Prosperity reigns from pole to pole in a paradise regained. The Garden of Eden is worldwide. It's back. Poverty is unknown. So is injustice. Everyone has his heart's desire. It's, it's an incredible, incredible time. We don't know exactly what it'll be like. It could be a time with no prisons, no hospitals, no mental institutions, no barracks, no saloons, no houses of ill repute, no gambling dens, no homes for the aged and the infirm. The bloom of youth is on everyone's cheek. Cemeteries are crumbling relics of the past and 
tears are infrequent. The wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, the child and the scorpion are all at peace. Jesus is come. The golden age has dawned. The earth is filled with the knowledge of God. Jesus is Lord. He rules the nation with a rod of iron. His reign is righteous and the nations obey. Sin is visited with swift and certain judgment. It's everything that you could never even imagine beyond your wildest dreams, that kind of life. This is the kingdom. This is what we live for. This is what we wait for. This is what we hope for. And, beloved, this is what is really coming. And this isn't it. We're not in it. Believe me, Satan is not bound. We're waiting for him to be bound, but he can't be bound until Jesus comes. Now, all of that, I'm sorry, that was all John MacArthur himself. Now, he's going to use an unidentified source to tell of possible scientific ramifications of the 1,000 years. Please be aware this is educated speculation, but not revealed truth. Using the beginning points of Scripture, this unknown author has attempted to paint a picture of what life will be like in that wonderful day. Now I quote, let me give you some insights from some in the field of science. Just listen to this. The violent earthquakes and upheavals through the tribulation time will have leveled all the polluted cities of a sinful world, the better to facilitate the erection of new, clean, peaceful communities at the beginning of the millennium. These great land movements will also have eliminated the great mountain ranges and islands of the world, filling up the ocean depths and restoring gentle, globally habitable topography and geography all over the world, as it had been in the antediluvian age, before the cataclysmic upheavals of the flood. As Isaiah the prophet has foretold, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. The prophets also say the islands will flee away. This reversal of the topographic upheavals of the flood, however, will not send waters over the continents again. In other words, they won't flood the globe, since much of the waters of the ocean will already have been re-elevated above the atmosphere, restoring in some measure the antediluvian waters above the firmament, the canopy of water. The worldwide draft of the first half of the tribulation, the cataclysmic splashdowns of bodies from the heavens during the trumpet judgments, the intensified solar radiations of the bowl judgments will all have contributed to the translation of vast quantities of water, water vapor, far back into the skies. The earth then would be sheltered as it was before the flood, sheltered from the ultraviolet rays of the sun, and that's why people will live to be very old, like they did before the flood. Quite probably, the immense tectonic movements and the earthquakes and eruptions and landslides may also have trapped vast quantities of water beneath fresh sedimentary and volcanic deposits, reinstating in partial degree the primeval pressurized reservoirs of the great deep, as the Bible calls it, facilitating the birth of copious artesian springs 
including one which will feed the vast river emerging from the millennial temple in Jerusalem, described by both Ezekiel and Zechariah. And the seas of the millennial world will be relatively narrow and shallow once again, as in primeval days. Furthermore, the restoration of the vapor canopy should in large measure restore the globally pleasant warm climate of that part of the that period of the earth again no longer will great atmospheric movements generate violent rainstorms blizzards hurricanes tornadoes because the uniform temperatures of the global greenhouse will inhibit air mass movements of more than local extent in the original world, the only rains were gentle mists from localized daily evaporation and precipitation, according to Genesis 2.5, keeping the world everywhere at comfortable temperatures and humidities and supporting an abundance of plant and animal life in all regions of the globe. There were no deserts or ice caps or uninhabitable mountain heights. It was all very good. The cataclysm of the great flood destroyed that beautiful world, but the global upheavals of the great tribulation will restore it at least in measure joel wrote fear not o land be glad and rejoice for the lord will do great things and be not afraid you beasts of the field for the pastures of the wilderness do spring for the tree bears her fruit the fig tree and the vine yield their strength be glad then ye children of zion rejoice in the lord your god for he hath given you the former rain moderately he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain, in the first month. Scientific expectation goes on. The redistribution of Earth's topography and restoration of its vapor canopy will result in the elimination of many, if not all, of its wastelands and deserts. And the prophet said in Isaiah, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert will rejoice and blossom as the rose. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. Somehow there will also come a great healing of the lands and the waters of the earth, healing from the terrible judgment of the tribulation. Before the great flood, the soils were rich in all the needed nutrients, and the drinking waters all came pure and fresh from artesian springs fed from deep underground reservoirs. The destruction of these deep fountains and the devastating land erosion of the Great Flood largely destroyed God's primeval terrestrial ecology, leaving the lands depleted and the waters polluted. Originally, all animals, as well as man, were to derive nourishment only from plant foods. But under the far more rigorous conditions of the post-Diluvian environment, God authorized man to eat animal flesh as well. Evidently, for the same reason, many animals also had to become carnivorous. These conditions were further aggravated during the long centuries after the flood, with the lands becoming further impoverished and the waters further contaminated, requiring increasingly great expenditures on fertilization and purification. The traumatic upheavals of the tribulation period will have brought these conditions to a climax with devastating famine conditions and with terrestrial waters so depleted and poisoned that all the animals of the sea had perished. Had such conditions been allowed to persist 
much longer, all life on earth would become impossible. In some marvelous way, God will use the physical convulsions of that awful period to purge and cleanse the land and the waters of the earth, as well as its moral and spiritual climate. Possibly the tectonic and volcanic upheavals and perhaps even the atmospheric bombardments will implant new supplies of needed nutrients and trace elements in the soils. Even the multitudes of dead animals and plants in the lands and the oceans, as well as the skeletons of the millions of dead men and horses at Armageddon and elsewhere, may well become fertilizing agents for the land as they remain scattered far and wide. Unprecedented global earthquakes and eruptions will trigger vast and violent landslides and showers of dirt and rocks, entrapping tremendous volumes of ocean waters beneath great overburdens of solid materials, which will rapidly become pressurized, lithified, and partially sealed. This will likely produce at least two effects. In the first place, the sea bottoms will be raised to higher elevation than at present, compensating for the great losses of water caused by the restoration of the atmospheric canopy and by the entrapment of vast volumes beneath the huge landslides, which produce the great reservoirs of fresh water. The entire crust itself will, to some extent, have shifted and slipped over the earth's mantle, rearranging the various continental plates to a more nearly uniform distribution of land and sea surface areas. Second, this extensive rearrangement will facilitate the development of a new terrestrial system of springs and spring-fed rivers. Isaiah 41 says, I will open rivers into high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Somehow God is even going to repopulate the oceans. We know that the second bold judgment resulted in the death of every living soul in the sea so that those fishes who required a marine environment were destroyed, eliminated. But we know that in the great millennial river in Jerusalem, described in Ezekiel 47, it says it shall come to pass Everything that lives, which moves, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish. Somehow the Lord is going to bring the fish back to the sea. He's going to adjust them so they can live in whatever the climate of that new water is. And so it goes. Well, you say, I think this is John MacArthur talking now. Is that all absolutely true? Or is that a little speculation? Well, it's a little speculation. But it may not be too far off. This is the this is the new creation. This is the glorious liberation of the children of God. This is when the creation is freed from its bondage. That's the kind of world it's going to be in terms of ecology or something similar to that, something like that. And when Satan isn't here, beyond that, it's going to be a world of blessedness a world of absolutely blessed, blessed conditions. Amen. Well, summing up, though there are those who want to tell us that premillennialism began in the 1800s, that's a fallacy. I've exposed that fallacy by tracing it from the Garden of Eden down through the centuries. 
Though the light was dim for some time, as it was with many other doctrines of the church during Rome's heyday, we see now how this doctrine was merely buried with other treasures for centuries inside a Bible that was largely ignored by the masses and interpreted only by the elite of Rome. Unfortunately, the pendulum is swinging away from the literal millennium again in our day as Reformed churches continue to hang on to the teaching they inherited from Mother Rome and pressure fellow believers in other communions to drop the argument altogether for the sake of unity. One denomination I know of that, that used to be strictly premillennial, the Evangelical Free Church, has taken the very word premillennial out of its description of the coming king. We don't want to offend, they say. This feeling of cooperation goes all the way back to Justin Martyr, who, as we quoted above, believed there were good people who believed amillennialism, therefore let's be loving. And truly there are good people of this persuasion, but is our faith in the literal scripture so weak that we must keep making accommodations for those who simply can't believe it? This ebb and flow of doctrinal positions is true about well, the events in Genesis 1 to 11, the gifts of the Spirit, the doctrines of grace, eternal judgment, probably every biblical position there is. How far will we have to go to appease people among us who won't accept Scripture as it is written? Here's my conclusion then. So there you have it. Your kingdom come. I've traced the concept of kingdom through Moses, the Psalms, Jewish history, the prophets, the words of Jesus, the teachings of the apostles. God's desire for and plan for a kingdom on earth where he will reign supreme. It's everywhere. The very timing of it is set. The descriptions are clear. The need is real. I've drawn a small sketch also of how men turned away from this view early in church history due to their inability to believe the scriptures as they are written, in my opinion. I've shown, I believe, the weakness of trusting in church fathers, reformers, great preachers. I've pointed us rather to the Spirit of God and a dedicated searching of scripture for the answers to this issue. May the love of the kingdom rise in your hearts as you continue your own quest for the truth of God's word. Let's pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not just among those you are presently governing, but in all the earth. May your name be glorified. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And we'll talk again perhaps very soon. Bye-bye.